Hi, women. Thanks so much for listening. Guess what? This is my 25th episode. And right before the 25th episode, I hit 2,500 listeners, which is so cool. The other very cool thing right before I'm uh, recording this is I got a message from somebody in the Philippines. People message me and ask me their questions. And it's just so touching to me that I'm here sitting in my basement closet and people are reaching out to me from across the world. So I have uh, my editor lives in the Philippines and I have a virtual assistant at work who lives in the Philippines and now a Filipino woman just texted me some pretty intimate uh, questions about something she was experiencing and just feeling all the love for you know what's going on in the world and still feeling so connected to people in different countries. So super honored about this. Let other people know about this podcast. Leave me a review wherever you're listening, Apple or Spotify, and I have some treats to send you. I've got three different companies that have sent me some lube samples. So I've got Uber Lube, which I've been working with for a couple of years. I've got samples to send you. Foria is the new one. It's a um, CBD oil actually called Awaken. So it's to enhance tactile sensation and pleasure. And then my other lube company is good clean fun which is awesome so leave me a review and then hit me up on the facebook you are not broken and just send me your personal stuff and say hey left a review here i am and i will send you some treats in the mail so without further ado my mentor pelvic pain expert dr gehrig welcome to you are not broken the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Casperson. I'm so excited today to have Dr. Nell Gehrig, founder of the Pelvic Solution Center in Denver, Colorado, join us on You Are Not Broken. Dr. Gehrig's passion is the treatment of pelvic pain disorders, including interstitial cystitis, painful bladder syndrome, pelvic floor dysfunction, pudendal neuralgia, chronic prostatitis, dyspareunia, the list goes on and on. We are so excited to have you. She trained in Denver and was a general urologist until she opened up her specialty practice. And she was one of my early mentors, not only for how to be a well-rounded urologist, but how to be a female urologist. So I'm so excited to have Dr. Gehrig on today. Thank you, Dr. Kasperson. I am delighted to be here. Oh, we're so excited. A reminder to our listeners that neither Dr. Kasperson and Dr. Gehrig are giving personal medical advice, and this podcast is for educational purposes only. We aim to educate you and empower you to reach out to your own personal physician for your specific healthcare needs. So Dr. Gehrig, tell me, give me the overview of how you transitioned from general urology to pelvic pain. Started almost as soon as I entered into practice because women with interstitial cystitis found me. They wanted to see female physician and I didn't know how to take care of them. And that was concerning. So I started attending every class I could. I read every article, every book. I listened to every webinar I could about interstitial cystitis. The more I learned about it, the better I became at treating it. And when that happens, you're just off and running. And then at one point, I started interacting with a physical therapist who taught me about some of the musculoskeletal implications in people who have interstitial cystitis 
So I learned about that. Then I started to learn about other things that can cause musculoskeletal issues in the pelvis. And then I started to learn more about pudendal neuralgia. And I just gradually made pelvic pain more and more of a focus in my practice until I realized I wanted to do only that. There's a limit to how much you can stay on top of. So as a subspecialist, I... I have had to give up some of the aspects of general urology to my practice to really focus on pain. And I've now come full circle because I started out being concerned about women's health. And now I'm a huge advocate for men with pelvic pain because they also get interstitial cystitis and all the other things that cause pelvic pain in women. And men are as under-recognized and under-treated as women And I'm happy to be able to help both genders. That's awesome. I would think men kind of get pigeonholed on focusing on the prostate all the time when it's actually, there's many more structures in the pelvis that can be the driver to this. That is absolutely correct. So when you see women with interstitial cystitis, is it common that they come in with a label already and you find out that it's actually something besides interstitial cystitis? That is common in my practice, and I see sort of two varieties of people, maybe three. People that I think have classic IC, people that have what seems like classic interstitial cystitis to me, but have been told, your bladder's just inflamed. And then the third class of people who have been labeled with interstitial cystitis, and they have been following their diet religiously for decades. And I have to say, actually, I don't think you have interstitial cystitis. You have pain, and I can help you with your pain, but that's not the cause of it, and we have to redirect. And that's difficult when you've been hanging on to that diagnosis for a long time. Yeah. I see a lot of, I don't know, I'm curious about how you kind of give people the diagnosis of interstitial cystitis. In my, in my practice, I tend to not put the label on people. I tend to say, this is the definition of interstitial cystitis. Does it sound like it fits you? And then kind of have them bring that in. Is that, what's your style with that? That is a very important part of my practice. I feel like when I explain what the problem is, if the light bulb goes off in the patient's head, then that tells me I'm on the right track. And as you know, there are people who don't exactly fit a category. And you have to say, well, your symptoms are suggestive of something like this. Let's talk about the pathophysiology and what is happening in the bladder lining and how that affects the nerves in the pelvis and how that then affects the muscles in the pelvis and start to talk about how all this fits together. And I agree with you completely. I think it helps people to figure out what's going on for them. You know, the podcast is more to educate and inform and not to diagnose, but could you give us, like, if there was like a stereotypical or classic interstitial cystitis, what would that look like in in a pelvis? That's a great question. The symptoms should be consistent. And the symptom is, the medical term for it is allodynia of the bladder. Allodynia means a non-painful stimulus that's now perceived as pain. So that pain is when your bladder fills up. That that is normally not painful. When you, normally when your bladder's full, you feel like you need to urinate, but you've got more than five seconds to get there, and it, you don't feel like there's gasoline in your bladder. 
So pain with bladder filling that's relieved when you urinate. You may only get relief for five minutes, but you do get some relief when you urinate. And that the patient feels like the pain is related to their bladder. And they have urinary frequency, meaning they need to urinate often. Is interstitial cystitis the most common type of pelvic pain you see in females in your clinic? Or is there a, a more common kind of presentation than interstitial cystitis that's out there? I think pelvic floor muscle tension or high tone pelvic floor dysfunction is probably more common. And it's something that can give you symptoms that it can give you burning. It can give you urinary frequency. It can often be confused with interstitial cystitis. People who have IC 95% of the time have pelvic floor muscle tension. So there's an interplay there. I'm not sure. I say that there are three common things I treat, which I mentioned earlier, interstitial cystitis, pelvic floor muscle tension, and pudendal neuralgia. And there's, there's some overlap in symptoms among all of those. How do you get, I think in Western medicine, people are very organ focused. So they, it's bladder, it's uterus, it's heart, lungs, and it's not so much muscle and nerve based thinking. And I think even for the general population, if they'll get a CAT scan or they'll get an imaging and then they'll be told there's nothing wrong because we're, we can't image or see pain in muscles and nerves. So how do you kind of get people to start thinking that it might not be an organ that ha that is the problem, but maybe a muscle or a nerve? I think a lot of that is based on physical exam. And I explain to patients that what I find, what a physical therapist finds on examination will look absolutely normal on imaging, like a CAT scan, an ultrasound, an MRI. But I can feel the difference. I can palpate the difference. So if I push on a muscle and it causes pain, then I educate the patient and say, that's a muscle. What I, I might feel like I'm pushing on your bladder. I'm not pushing on your bladder. That's a referred pain to a different area. And I think that helps the buy-in. And also just explaining the anatomy of the pelvis and the function, the physi physiology of how all these things work together and have to work together. Perfect. Speaking of physical therapy, how do you integrate the role of physical therapists in your practice? I would say 95% of my patients need physical therapy. And I've now made a little handout for new patients. And at the top, I start listing their diagnosis and then what the goals of treatment are. And I've just learned that it's important to include the patient in setting goals for their treatment. But my goals are general things like heal the bladder lining. And I inform them that physical therapy is the primary treatment. Everything else I have makes physical therapy work better and last longer. With a caveat, that's not true for ulcerative interstitial cystitis. People who have the inflammatory lesions in the bladder that we call Hunter's ulcers. You know, there is definitive treatment for that that is very helpful. So I wouldn't say, I don't want anyone to be confused to think that physical therapy is the primary treatment for ulcerative interstitial cystitis, but it is an adjunctive treatment for anyone who has muscle tension or alignment issues. Perfect. And there's so much more that physical therapy can do. There's so much they can treat. There's so much education that they have to give you about how your bowel and bladder function, about what your sexual experience can and should or should not be like, about how you manage your, your 
fluid intake, your your diet, your exercise, your anxiety. Physical therapists are brilliant and their treatment is so important. I agree. I think the the hardest, the misperception I see frequently is people thinking that physical therapy means Kegels. And then the, the jump from that of, well, I already do Kegels or Kegels don't work and kind of needing to expand that mindset of what physical therapy is. People think that a physical therapist is going to teach them how to do some exercises that they are going to do at home, and they'll only need a couple of visits and, and they'll be fine. And for the pelvis, that's just not true. It's part of it is true, but the treatment itself is far more about what the therapist does for you that you cannot do yourself. I, I agree. What are some things that women can do kind of lifestyle-wise or at home to help improve their pain? So I read an interesting article yesterday from the ICA journal magazine, and all patients have access to this, about how to figure out the diet issues. Diet is always very confusing for interstitial cystitis patients, and they had a much more practical approach to figuring out how to eliminate foods and then add them back in. I tell patients, I don't think you can cure yourself with a diet, but if you can figure out what things bother you the most, then it might be a, uh, wise to avoid those for a while. And then as you get better, my job is to get you to where you can eat it and drink just about anything you want to. So as you improve, you may be able to incorporate some of those things. But other lifestyle things, I do think that clean eating is helpful in general. Your primary fluid intake should be water and you should avoid processed foods, sort of the anti-inflammatory type of a diet. I think it's helpful for all people who have any type of pain. The second thing is really movement. When you have pain, you're afraid to move because it's called kinesiophobia, fear of movement. You're afraid that if you move, and you cause yourself pain that you are causing yourself harm or damage. The trick is to start slowly and walk around the block rather than running a marathon, and then slowly increase your activity as you're able. I think movement is a very important part of therapy for anyone with pain. And then stress management is very important. If you have any muscle tension, and we all have muscle tension, we all stuff our stress into our muscles. We have a place where it typically goes, and sometimes it pops up where it doesn't typically go. If you have a, an inflammatory condition like interstitial cystitis, you're predisposed to having pelvic floor muscle tension. And muscles that are tight have an exaggerated physiological response to stress. So when you're under stress, your muscles will be magnitudes of order increase in tension than they normally would. And I think stress management, my common sense approach to stress management is it's about what your mom taught you when you were eight. Get enough sleep, get some exercise, spend time with friends, especially ones who help you laugh. Do something that feeds your spirit or your soul. Get out in the sunshine, eat your carrots before your ice cream. And we don't do that in Western society. We just work. And work can suck you in and you work harder and harder and harder. And you need to actively take care of yourself. I see it so much too, specifically with women, of we're naturally givers and we give to our families, we give to our work, we give to our significant other. And you just say, well, there's nothing else to give. 
instead of realizing giving to yourself builds the foundation for having to take care of everything else. Absolutely. And when you have young children, that's very difficult, especially if you have, if you're employed outside the home, you know, you basically have three full-time jobs. I read a book once in which the author was discussing that very issue. And she said, telling women with young children to try to have balance in their life is like telling an elephant to balance on a basketball. It's not going to happen. So you can't have it all at once, but you need to start to incorporate self-care in the ways that you can, because you're right. Women try to take care of everybody else, and we're not as good at taking care of ourselves. We need to put the oxygen mask on our own body before we help someone else. Totally. And I think it helps just talking about the lifestyle things that improve pain helps in kind of helping people realize that your solution is unlikely to be in a doctor and a pill. This is a really a body, a body healing and a body health. And I see so many women because they have, they are so stretched thin, right? They've got so many things going on that they just want their pain to be fixed immediately with a pill. And it kind of leads to disappointment or stress on both the doctor and the patient to have that sort of expectation. How do you have that conversation? I have it over and over and over. And I just say, it's the American way. You know, if you want me to get the magic wand out of the bottom drawer, I will. But it's a plastic toy that's designed for kids. And it's not really going to make you better. What everybody wants is, you know, give me a pill for five days and I'll be done and I'll be on my way. And then I can go back to my crappy lifestyle where I work too hard and don't take care of myself. And I've had a few patients who reminded me Uh, people who really had severe pain, on their first visit, they said, Dr. Gehrig, how long do you think it's going to take before I'm really better? And and apparently a couple of times I've said, well, give me a year or two. If if you have severe multifactorial pain, it is going to take some time. And and it's a job. It's an effort. You know, you, you really have a lot of things. The good news is there's a lot of things you can do. The bad news is there's a lot of things you have to do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to, I mean, you've seen enough success stories that certainly you can speak to the fact that it works and and women do get better and women do kind of move on from that phase. I can see that day. I can see that day at the first visit. I can see the day when they come back. I had a patient that I diagnosed with interstitial cystitis and she came back three years later and she said, Dr. Garrick, do you know what I think I really needed? I had to learn how to relax. That shocked me. Amazing. Oh, but there's hope. There's hope. That's so powerful. Talking about moving back to your role as the doctor, the one FDA approved medicine, so doctors use a lot of medications that aren't FDA approved, especially for kind of niche problems that there isn't a lot of research going on. But the one FDA approved med for interstitial cystitis now has significant safety warnings for retinal damage. So how are you discussing that medication or other medications as treatment options with your patients? Although we don't know exactly what causes interstitial cystitis, we do know that one of the most common theories is that the mucus barrier that lines the inside of the bladder gets holes and cracks in it. So treatments are aimed at repairing that mucus barrier. And the FDA-approved medication, Pentasan, has shown to cause retinal damage in people who are taking it for a long time, 16 to 20 years. The problem is we don't know what the denominator is. 
We don't know what the percent of patients who will get that problem, but if you get it, it's irreversible. So obviously we want to avoid that. So the first thing is I have told people that we may still choose to use Elmeron, but for a shorter period of time. In my practice, I don't want anybody to be on it for more than five years. And if they are, they have to have a retinal exam every year. Interestingly, in my practice, I found that some of the supplements uh, that help bladder healing were pretty effective. And one that I've used the most of contains glucosamine and quercetin. Glucosamine is one of the things that's good for your joints. And it turns out that some of these supplements that may have things that are good for your joints might be good for your bladder. This recommendation is based on my personal experience. I don't have a study. I don't have data that shows this but it does make sense to me that some of those things can help your bladder heal. And I think that's important. I think that if you do have the inflammatory lesions that we call Hunter's ulcers, that medications will not work unless you get a surgical procedure to get rid of the inflammatory lesions. And that's called cautery. We fulgurate, cauterize, burn the lesions, which sounds like it would be very painful, but it's not. It gets rid of the abnormal inflamed area and then normal bladder lining can heal in. Then I use medications to keep the bladder healthy and try to prevent those from coming back. There are other medicines that may be helpful. Antihistamines can be helpful. Sometimes there are problems with long-term use of antihistamines as well. Other medicines that can be helpful are what I call neuromodulators. Part of the problem with IC or any form of pelvic pain is neurological upregulation. And the way it works is this. If you have anything that causes pain for more than a few months, months, your pain nerves get revved up. And when they're revved up, it takes less and less of the same stimulus for you to feel discomfort. Then they go on autopilot. And it's like they have a pacemaker in them. They're sending pain messages even when they're not being stimulated. Neuromodulating medicines help that calm down and help heal that process and let the nerves reset back to normal. So sometimes those types of medicines are helpful and they're in the families of medicines that treat either seizures or depression. What about the supplement aloe vera? Aloe vera, I'm glad you reminded me. Some patients find that very useful. You have to work up to six capsules a day but you start slowly. So you start with just one a day and you wait, you know, three, five, seven days before you add in another and, and, and try to work up to the six capsules a day. But it, it's, a, it's interesting, things that hold on to moisture help your bladder heal and aloes is what I would put in that category. Cool. Let's talk specifically about the, the woman who comes in and she, she has fine intercourse. Sex, she says, does not hurt but it's the day after, two days after, her bladder just acts up. And maybe she's gone in thinking it's a UTI, but multiple urine cultures are negative. How do you walk through that issue? Because I know it's, it's so common out there. I think the key is really what you find on physical examination. So when you tell me that story, what I think is that I'm going to do a pelvic exam and I'm going to find some tension in that person's pelvic floor muscles. And I suspect that that's going to be what flares them up. And if so, then I go down one path of treatment for pelvic floor muscle tension. If their muscles are absolutely fine, then it's still possible that that could be a form of interstitial cystitis. And so treatment for IC might be useful. It's 
if the cultures are always negative, it's probably something that feels like an infection, but it's not an infection. What's the role of a medication that you can get to put in the vagina for pain? Again, I understand a lot of this is not FDA approved and it's kind of niche, but some women will, they've either heard of that or they want to try it. Is that something that you use a lot of? It's useful, again, for people who have muscle tension. We use muscle relaxants and sometimes even those neuromodulating medicines. I put uh, local anesthetics and if possible, it works best if it can be mixed up by a compound pharmacy. They put the medications into a, a little bullet, like a suppository that's inserted into the vagina. And that as it melts, it's, it sort of coats the lining of the vagina. The best studies that we have show that the absorption into the bloodstream is really only about three to 5% of the whole dose of the medicine. So it has a much more potent effect locally on the pelvic floor muscles without getting into your bloodstream so much. So it's not as sedating as taking those muscle relaxants orally. Perfect. I look on it as an adjunct to physical therapy. It doesn't take the place of PT, but it can help it work better and last longer. And your goal, not to overgeneralize, but your goal would be that women might not need to be on medications long-term, right? Absolutely. Every patient, I have the goal of getting them off medication. Can we talk specifically, just like we did with IC, if there is, let's talk about pudendal neuralgia. A lot of people haven't heard of that term or know kind of what that might feel like. Can you talk briefly about your work in pudendal neuralgia? So the pudendal nerve comes off the sacrum and it's an important nerve in the pelvis. It has a lot of functions. In the sensory part, meaning the sensation where it can get you into trouble with pain, is it basically feeds your central crotch structure. So it has a branch to the clitoris, the penis, the urethra, the vaginal opening, the perineum between the vagina and the rectum. It feeds the scrotum in men. It feeds the rectum. It feeds the urethral and anal sphincters. So that's why I say it's kind of that central area. The typical symptoms are burning, stabbing, or throbbing pain in that distribution. Usually worse with sitting, sometimes relieved by sitting on a toilet seat. I find that people who have pudendal neuralgia often have urinary frequency. They may feel that they have what we call a foreign body sensation in the vagina or rectum where you feel like there's a golf ball or a grape or an orange inside the vagina. And it causes pain with urination, pain with sexual activity, pain with bowel movements. And is, is, can it happen for any reason or are there certain injuries that can lead to it? The most common reason would be tightness of the pelvic floor muscles because they push directly on the pudendal nerve. It can also happen if your pelvis is out of alignment, like your pelvis can actually move a little one side to the other. That can contribute to pudendal neuralgia, as can injuries, uh, fractures, uh, pelvic injuries, even sometimes, occasionally surgical procedures. Oh, we should talk about post-childbirth and what delivering a baby can do it to, as far as causing pelvic pain. It can cause it. <laughs> it can cause it. And I have seen people with pudendal neuralgia after childbirth. One thing that commonly happens after childbirth is if there's prolonged pressure of the baby's head on the pudendal nerve, it may cause some difficulties with urinary incontinence. That's more of a motor function. Less commonly does it cause pain, but I have seen that happen where people do have pain afterward. There are so many things that can cause pain after 
childbirth, like women can have pain in the tailbone. They can have pain with sexual activity. And I so strongly encourage anyone who is experiencing that to find a physical therapist in your area who's well-trained in treating pelvic pain and not to listen to someone who says, oh, that's normal. It'll go away. It'll be fine. Everything will get better. You know, if it lasts more than a week, you know, if you're six, eight weeks after delivering your child and you're still having significant discomfort, seek help. Absolutely. I think, I think a lot of women are, they don't know what normal is after right. having a baby and that we can, can reiterate, it's not normal to have pain and pain with sex. It's not normal to have pain with sex. And I get that. I'm a doctor and I had a baby and I didn't know what was normal. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a lot of education of what to expect postpartum. Right. I, I, you know, seeing women postpartum, I, I see um, not infrequently a woman who she just has a feeling that everything's falling out. But when you do an exam, nothing's not falling out. Would that be part of the kind of nerve strain and muscle weakness afterwards? Or do you see that at all? I actually see it with people who have muscle tension. And I think it is an abnormal nerve signal. I see that very often, a, a sense that things are falling out when they're not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if going along the, the theme that a lot of women are ignored or are kind of embarrassed to seek help with their physicians, can you give some women some tips to help empower them to speak up to their doctors about getting help? I think it's often helpful to take someone else to the visit with you who is your advocate, someone who knows you well, that can just add some strength to the legitimacy of your complaints. I also encourage people to find a physical therapist in their area. And one of the, there are a couple of ways to do this. You can go to the American Physical Therapy Association website. It used to be the section on women's health. And I think, I know this is for women, but I'm very happy. We've just got to change to the section on pelvic health so men can be included. They have a list of practitioners trained in, and you want to make sure you have someone who's been trained in treating pelvic pain, not just urinary incontinence. The International Pelvic Pain Society website also lists practitioners. And the final website is one called Herman Wallace. Herman Wallace, uh, they li- you can find a practitioner in your area and that will guarantee that that person has, that physical therapist has at least completed a basic level of training in pelvic pain. And then I think the physical therapist can help you find other physicians if needed to help you. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. You know how it works in our community is we have our, our doctors, our physical therapists, our sex therapists, and somebody might find one of them somehow and then we, we all know each other. And so usually people working in this area kind of have a tribe of support and you know tools in their toolbox. So once you get in with somebody and you ask around, they're a good network for people that are local. And it takes a tribe. It takes a team. It's not a pill. A pill is, is not, like you said, the magic wand. As much as we wish there was one, I tell, I tell women, I I'm wish. Like, if there was one, I'd work part-time. <laughs> and if Kegels worked, I'd work part-time. So in talking, we've been talking a lot about what, what can help pelvic pain. Just give me a contrast for a second, just for kind of playfulness on it. What behavior is not helpful when living with chronic pelvic pain? It turns out that those, there are two things, and they are a normal human reaction to pain, which is really unfortunate. It's called rumination and catastrophization. So rumination, I say, is like when you have a sore in your mouth and your tongue keeps rubbing over it, like your tongue's going to figure out what's wrong or it's going to solve the problem. But you find yourself doing that all the time. 
that's rumination. So the way that looks like in your brain is how, how did I get this again? I, why did this happen? Why did, you know, I can't, um, what's, is it, you know, my doctor said it might be X, but I, I don't know if that's right. I'm going to get online. I'm going to figure out maybe it's something else. I, I don't, when am I ever going to get over this? Catastrophization is when you think you're never going to get over it. Catastrophization is you wake up and you start having pain and you say, oh no, here it comes. It's going to be a bad day. I'm not going to make it through the afternoon. I can't do my meeting. I'm never, oh no, my my week is going to be bad. I can't go on that vacation. I'm never going to have sex again. My life is over. I'm And you're sucked into this whirl, downward spiral of negative thinking. And I tell people those are normal human reactions to pain, but they make your pain worse. There's a good website called How to Cope with Pain howtocopewithpain.org. And they have great suggestions on how to help yourself avoid some of those behaviors, but it can usually be helpful to work with a pain psychologist. Because if you truly have been dealing with significant pain for a long time, it's overwhelming. And they can help you engage with some of the tools that you have to avoid participating in some of those behaviors. And quickly, I guess the other thing I would say is try not to avoid movement. Wonderful. Those are really good examples and kind of how to think about what those big words sometimes mean. That's awesome. What would you want for, let's say there's a a partner or a man living with a woman with chronic pelvic pain. If you could talk to the the male partner about this, what would you tell them? I would tell them that the pain is real. I would say the woman in your life isn't making this up. She doesn't want to feel that way. So, and on the flip side, sometimes she may feel pressured to pretend she's not having pain in order to participate in activities with the family, to participate in sex, to go to Disney, to go on vacation, to visit the in-laws, you know, whatever it may be. And that she probably feels really guilty about not being able to do everything that she would like to be able to do. I would say communication, like every other aspect of a relationship, is very important. And to be able to, the best of your ability, be supportive during those times when things aren't going well. And to to try to work together toward finding solutions so that she can get back to a healthier, better life. I love it. I love it. And for, for doctors in general or nurse practitioners or anybody who, who sees women and cares for women and that sort of practice, you're just such a great resource for everybody. But for the, for the average doctor who sees a woman with pelvic pain, what would you want them to know? I would want them to know a little bit about interstitial cystitis and, and what the symptoms are and be willing to refer sooner rather than later. I want them to know what the symptoms of endometriosis are and get treated women to get treated for it at a young age and not wait till they've had pain for 30 years. I would like them to learn a little bit about muscle tension and pudendal neuralgia and the things that cause pelvic pain so their patients can be referred. The number one thing that I want people to change is what we all need to change it's a problem, in, at least in American medicine. If the doctor doesn't understand the problem, the patient is labeled as crazy. And we physicians need to change the way they practice because new things come up that we've never heard of. We've never heard of COVID-19. Yes, we know how to take care of people with viral illnesses, 
So no one was told that they were crazy. But before we had MRIs, people didn't understand the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. And many patients were led to believe that they were imagining all these symptoms. And then we got an MRI that could show white lesions in the brain explaining symptoms in a, multiple parts of the body. And suddenly patients became less crazy. So we all need to try to have empathy with helping our patients get the help they need. I love it. I love it. Mine would be don't treat everything in the pelvis as a UTI and just give out antibiotics. Absolutely. I have a colleague who says, when are human beings going to get the same respect as the chickens? Because we've learned not to give chickens so many antibiotics. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, where can people find you? I'm in Denver. You can find my website, pelvicsolutionscenter.com. And we have seen people from all over the country, all over the world, really. If people come in from out of state, we like them to spend a week and get an evaluation with our physical therapists here. But your doctors can call me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you're such a resource. And Thank you. You're a mentor to me. And I think this is going to be really valuable for the women who listen to my Thank podcast. you for putting this out here because it's a pleasure to be able to talk about my passion. Awesome. You're truly a passionate and a leading expert. So thank you. Thank you.